we have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. When I went to sleep, Trump had to leave. How the hell did we go from election day to election week? The posters got in the wrong again. They must have been confused. But I tell ya about shit myself when I turn on the morning news. Cause they found pilots in the Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and welcome to my show. Uh, Today is December the 13th in the year 2020. Go to my uh, website, armchairsurvivalist.com, and you can find out how to listen to me. Obviously, you know at least one way to listen to me, but there's all kinds of different ways. Now, I don't have a lot of time to chit-chat with you, but... Go to armchairsurvivalist.com, scroll down, ways to listen. Every podcast venue known to man, I'm on satellite. You can call and listen on your phone. Again, just go to armchairsurvivalist.com, any of the pages there, scroll down, the phone number to call is there, everything else is there. All right, so now we got to get some business out of the way for my company, Survival Enterprises. Not much. I just want to tell everybody again, the ultimate daily vitamin that we've carried for a 25 years can't carry it anymore because can't get the ingredients it's a supply chain problem swedish dry herbs where you mix with vodka or whatever alcohol you want and make your own swedish bitters can't get the herbs anymore right now either they're imported out of germany and there's a problem with germany there so that's what we can't have right now if you're going to order liquids from anybody us anybody else get them out of the way as soon as possible now, we monitor what the weather's going to be like between us and you, wherever that is. So we're careful when we ship. We colloidal minerals, colloidal silver, Lugol's iodine, ionic minerals, all of that stuff. You go to us, SE1. That's uh, S is in survival, E is in enterprise, the numeral 1.us. And uh, you can see everything that we got there. 
We do have the Voyager shortwave radios in, shortwave, AM, FM, and NOAA weatherman. Comes with an AC adapter. It's a the crank up radio, right? You can crank it up. There's a solar panel on top. It has its own built in batteries. You can put your batteries in it too. And it comes with this uh, what I call the stealth antenna. It's a roll up thing. It's about the size of a uh, a uh, business card, yeah, a little bit bigger. It's twenty feet long, and you clip that to your antenna, and you go on shortwave. Hang that thing out the window, or run it up a tree, or something like that. Anyway, that's what we got there. Okay. Now, we're going to get into immediately get into the economy. Yeah, that's all you need is more bad news. A hundred over a hundred thousand businesses that temporarily shut down, right? Your, your uh, communist mayor or governor says, Oh, you got to shut the business down. All right. So, all these businesses that, that uh, shut down for that, uh, a lot of them are now not even going to open up again. Over a hundred thousand. And then this is, this is a survey that was done just recently. And in uh, New York and New Jersey, a third of all small businesses, that's 33%, maybe 35% of all small businesses that had closed in New York and New Jersey, they're not opening up again. The restaurant industry, it's in free fall. The restaurants are closing daily. These guys are closing. They can't keep alive. There's, in the last three months, over 10,000 restaurants. I don't mean a 500-square-foot hole-in-a-wall in, the wall in uh, Belmont, California. I'm talking about restaurants where, where 20 to 100 people or more can go and eat, close down, and going away. Now, those, those uh, uh, of you in Baltimore that decided to elect a black racist uh, BLM supporter for your mayor, look good. His first job that he did was close all restaurants, indoor and outdoor dining, period. Closed all restaurants in Baltimore. It's bad news for New York City. Their big companies there are bailing daily. Goldman Sachs just came out and said they're they're moving to Florida. Goldman Sachs has been there, what, 100 years? Okay, now we've got to get into the health department. I don't know if you guys heard about what happened here in Idaho this week. See, what, what the uh, communists do is they, they have to, by law, announce when they're going to have a meeting of any kind. So they do. Like the health commission has decides to have a meeting. Uh, the city council decides to have a meeting. So what happened was in Idaho, we have, we have two parts to Idaho. We have the, the panhandle, and then we have the uh, part that's not Idaho, which is south Idaho. It, it's hard to understand, but if you head south from Coeur d'Alene, once you pass the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, you're in Northern California. Whether it says Idaho or not, it's irrelevant. It's all communist down there. So the, uh, the, the uh, public health department that covers Boise and, and uh, four or five other giant counties down there decided to have a, and I quote, a meeting to debate whether or not they're going to have mandatory masks in Southern Idaho. Well, they thought they'd be cute and decided not to have the uh, meeting at the normal place. So they decided to have a Zoom meeting. So there was like, I don't remember, 8 to 12 people are on this Zoom meeting, and they're all in different places. Well, instead of all the patriots going to where the meeting would normally be held, they did something else. They took a page out of the Antifa playbook. In the middle of the meeting, one of the women there 
got a phone call and she started crying. She said, "I I, I got to go home right now because because there there's there's a bunch of bunch of rioters out front that are threatening my twelve year old son. He's home alone." So she she left. And then minutes later, somebody else left also. Turns out everybody went to all of these people's homes and stood out on public property on a sidewalk or in the street with bullhorns yelling at them, waving Trump flags, which made them all wet their pants. If you decide that you want to be part of the political makeup that controls thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions of of citizens, then you damn well better understand there's repercussions. There is law of cause and effect. These politicians cannot continue to be in their ivory tower away from all repercussions. You do something bad, you ought to deserve to be punished for it. And this is what's happening now. And it scared the hell out of them, so they decided to cancel that meeting. Uh, New Jersey governor, he's really upset. He said, I don't understand what's going on. We have these these contact tracers that are supposed to be helping you all and keeping you from getting infected by your friends. But 74%, and they have an actual statistic here, 74%, they won't, they won't cooperate. We, we, don't, we don't know what we're going to do. I thought that was funny when I saw that. All right, now we're going to get into the uh, vaccination section of this. Now, we're in, under food and health, and now the vaccination is underneath this one. I don't know if you people remember this, but remember some years back when the military said, we're going to give all the soldiers anthrax shots? 35,000 died from those shots. You guys in the military, you are guinea pigs. That is one of the reasons they have such a large military in the United States, is so they have a large guinea pig population. And that's exactly, exactly what you are. You will be getting these shots, whether you want them or not. You saw the news last week of the two people, uh, male and female, that were the first to get the shots in the UK. Well, first off, that was all bogus. But the problem is, the people who did get the shots, they went into anaphylactic shock. So right now, the UK is telling everyone who has allergies, don't get this shot. Four people, as a matter of fact, got facial paralysis. Australia, and this just occurred, people who got the shots in Australia started to exhibit HIV symptoms, were given HIV tests, and were coming up positive. Australia just stopped the $750 million rollout on the, uh, on the shots. You've you got to understand what's, what's going on here. We're the guinea pigs. If we live, great. If we don't live, so what? There, we always give birth to plenty of people during the year. The FDA is supposed to look at Pfizer. Now, they've already green-lighted it and said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, here's what you don't know is the fact that FDA lists 22, 22 potential side effects of this uh, vaccine. I can't even pronounce most of them. Stroke is one. Anaphylaxis shock is one. Myocarditis, deaths, pregnancy and birth outcomes are going to be problematic. Oh, God, I can't even, I can't. Kawasaki disease, uh, there's there's so many things. There's 22 of them. These are the things that popped up in the tests. And the FDA said, well, that's good enough for us. Oh, CNN came out and said, look, don't be alarmed. If people start dying after taking the vaccine, it's it's expected. People will die. It's no big deal. 90% of the people that have been polled are 100% against taking this exact vaccination. 90%. Meaning 90% said no way in hell ever 
you know, there was a few percentages that said, yeah, maybe there's a way I'll do it. You know, I had some guy come in here yesterday. He said, well, I want to get back into the business, so I'm going to take that shot. As soon as it's ready, I want it. And you Canadians, they've already talked up there that if you don't get the, the, the vaccination, you're going to be bound to your house forever, and you'll never be able to, to leave. New York is pushing legislation to make the COVID-19 vaccination mandatory. This is mandatory, you understand? Well, we'll see what happens with all of this stuff. Now, we're go- there's only one little thing in the food section now. This is disgusting. Last week, I talked about lab-grown meat. Well, now they're growing steaks from human cells. This is lab-grown, but it's the base is human cells. Now, I remember somewhere, somebody said something about that. Soylent green is made out of people. Next thing, they'll be breeding us like cattle for food. You gotta tell them, Soylent green is people! Ah, yes, Charlton Heston in Soylent Green. Isn't it strange how all of these things that we thought were just uh, science fiction are now becoming reality? And this is what happens when you let, allow the liberal psychotics to control the world, which is now we're, we're in that category, liberal psychosis. Do you remember Goya Foods and the uh, communist, that uh, female communist AOC, that comes out and said that... Uh, uh, they didn't, she didn't like Goya Foods because the CEO is extremely conservative. So she came, came out and said, listen, we're going to boycott them. We're going to boycott Goya Foods. Well, what actually happened was their sales increased 1,000%. So the CEO of Goya Foods awarded AOC Salesperson of the Year Award. In, in no order, usually, uh, this stuff, the liberal psychosis is so insane. I, I just read one and, and it's just like, you're going to go, what? What the hell are you talking about? So the Olympics Committee for 2024 decided that breakdancing is now an Olympic sport. Okay, Nickelodeon, child's program, has decided to start promoting uh, children perverts. They call it transgender. And I have seen these insane mothers claim that their three-year-old boy is a transgender. And in English, what that usually means is a transvestite. So Nickelodeon now is, gonna, is, is launching a program to, to uh, groom these transgender children into becoming actors and actresses. Speaking of actors and actresses, you know Ritz crackers? The crackers that I won't ever be eating again the rest of my life? I have new commercials coming out now. Where it starts off with this man is putting lipstick on. And then he goes and sits next to his husband. And they eat Ritz crackers. And it's and Ritz says, every family loves Ritz crackers. So, you know, all of the stuff I talk about on my website, you can go there under show notes and you can see the links to where all, all of the stuff. And this, yeah. You'll see the link to that, and you can go to it. You can sign up. You can. You'll see. You can. You can sign up a petition to get this off the air. This is this is sick and disgusting that they do this, and you can see who the enemies are. The this tribe of Democrats and communists. You can see who the enemy is, and here's part of that. San Diego. San Diego is now teaching school teachers, and this is a man. This is mandatory, by the way. Every school teacher in San Diego has to undergo undergo white privilege training where they're taught how to stop 
showing white privilege, how to stop being so racist. See, they're racist because they're white. That means they're automatically racist. And they they automatically have white privilege. So they're, all the teachers have to go undergo this uh, propaganda, this brainwashing. He's the new top prosecutor of L.A. County in California. His name's George Gascon. Gascon? First thing he does, he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I'm not going to file on. These are a bunch of things that we're not going to waste our time on. Things like resisting arrest, trespassing, disturbing the peace, driving without a valid license, driving with a suspended license, criminal threats, drug possession, public intoxication, loitering to commit prostitution, possession of alcohol by a minor, and being under the influence of a controlled substance. And there's more. He's just not going to waste his time or the county's money filing charges against somebody who has committed nothing, really. YouTube came out and uh, announced that as of a few days ago, they are banning any videos that have anything in any way, shape, or form to to say about election fraud. No election fraud videos are allowed on YouTube anymore. I don't understand why they're even leaving me on there. Do you know I've got over 200 videos on YouTube? You just go on YouTube and look up the armchair survivalists. You'll find them all. The only video YouTube ever took down was a video I did, was a, a show I did on Jews and, re, and the uh, truth behind Israel, which was based all on firsthand reports and the truth. Not a big deal. That's the only one they took down in how many years? Now, we've talked about this, um, the Great Reset. See, you got to put all of the data. Here's the problem. I, ta- I say so much. I give you so much data. And you pick up information from all over the world. Not just from me, but from other people. When you're gathering intelligence, unless you're actually functioning with a target, uh, then you're going to pick up intel from over here and then from over there and from back behind you and from this person and from that person, this book and that this, that book. And you add it all together and you have a communist pope who's destroying the Catholic Church, who has invalidated and insulted Christianity to such a degree that he actually came out and said that even Islam has good things about it and they ought to get together. Well, he decided to uh, join an alliance to create the giant Great Reset. In this alliance, you can tell who these people, you can tell what these people are by listening to this. We are answering Pope Francis's challenge to create more inclusive economies that spread the benefit of capitalism more equitably and allow individuals to realize their full potential. A majority of people around the world say that they think their families will be worse off in five years. That's a scenario that we simply can't accept. Too much wealth has accreted to too few people. If you make money, What's the point if you're not prepared to share it? If the people who help make that wealth for you can't live with dignity. It's inclusive capitalism, though, and we have to recognize that starting from where we are to where we need to get to, you know, we need to bring everyone as, uh, along and there will be adjustments that come with that. We do need the private sector's ingenuity, capital, technology, people, everything, their passion to come to the party. We want to operate in a sustainable way. When centers are aligned, 
across generations, not just across quarters. And the main actors take a long-term perspective. Aligning our innovation with the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the priorities of inclusive capitalism is both a business and sustainability imperative. Two reasons, I think, why I'd say concrete commitments uh, to inclusive capitalism matter. I mean, the first, and, and not to be underestimated, really important, is they can inspire other people. And the second thing that I would say around concrete public commitments is they can help build trust. Leaders in the business community can be a unifying force. They can be a, a source of opportunity. They can be a source of understanding. So we as business leaders can step up and solve many of these economic problems. I think business uh, plays a very important role in, in resolving these challenges. I think businesses have to become you know, part of the solution through leadership uh, by example uh, and through leadership by incentives. We are stewards of this earth. It's our duty to keep it clean and to keep it decent for future generations. I'm wanting to embark on this journey to provide the guidance and the assistance of the church's own social thoughts and whatever other consideration might be necessary, you know, whether ethical or, you know, just social guidance, so that this group that has, you know, taken up such a noble task of making capitalism work for the good of humanity, achieve its goal and land on target. So this is our vision. This is our purpose. The fact that different religions need to come together on all matters is just the crying need of the times in our world. Faith cannot be used to pull us apart. Faith is meant to bring us together. And the fact that I'm a Sikh and somebody else is a different religion, to me, doesn't matter. Our work is indeed about social justice, which is rooted in the gospel. The idea that every person deserves to live in a just society. Capitalism is at the heart of innovation that creates higher standard of living. And we know that it's been working, yet we also know we can do a lot better. We need a new system focused on the well-being of people. It's a big challenge, but if it is done right, the benefits will be immense. It's not just an asset owner. It's not just an asset manager. It's not just a, a CEO. It's not just these boards of directors. We have to work collectively over the long term. What I think capitalism has to stand for to, to be inclusive capitalism, how we help everybody have equal access to the opportunity, have, have the economic mobility. The council is a terrific body in which we can assemble a critical mass of companies to join and commit uh, to concrete actions that not only affect and improve the communities in which we live, but affect the world community of which we're all a part of. We believe we need more than a thousand organizations on board and only with this very purposeful collective action we will see the systemic change across markets that will make capitalism truly inclusive. We invite all businesses large and small and individuals to join us as stewards for inclusive capitalism by going to our website, agreeing the principles and making your own commitments to inclusive capitalism. All right, you heard the code word there, inclusive capitalism. See, according to the communists, capitalism is not inclusive. It's capitalism only works for rich people, not for poor people. Capitalism doesn't work for people who actually get a job, hold it, and, uh, you know, improve their lot in life. No, no, it, it could never work for it that way. It, it only works for the rich people. So this is the new, this is the new buzzword. You will hear it, and it's going to start getting louder and louder this year. 
They can't lie and say capitalism doesn't work. It does. But they now they have to stick their little tiny communist nose in and, and use the word inclusive capitalism. You'll see it. And what they want to do is basically, this is a UN plan, and I still can't grasp why they're still even in existence, much less in my country. Their plan is to force a uh, inclusive capitalistic tax on all businesses so that people around the world can benefit from the, the uh, uh, abilities of those who can because they are uh, supporting those who can't or won't. So those who can are going to be supporting those who won't. And then the word is work. Okay, now we're going to get into government threat. Guess who won another election in Venezuela using Dominion machines? Yes, Maduro. He magically wins, and now he's more in control of Venezuela than before. By the way, you know how for the past six, seven months, Congress has not been able to get a uh, package out, the uh, COVID package, you know, the extra money for unemployment, uh, bailouts for businesses, that kind of stuff. They haven't been able to get it out, and, and uh, Pelosi's been claiming that it's because of the Republicans. Well, the news came out that, and she said this on the air, yeah, we kind of stalled everything because we just don't like Trump, and we're, we're waiting until Biden gets in, and then, and then we will get everything we want, which is complete communism, and that's exactly what they want. They just want complete control, and us idiots won't allow them to have complete control. Apparently, at least, you know, we don't like the idea that they're going to have complete control. Now, all week long, the mainstream media, ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, Fox News, has been crowing about all the different people that Biden is putting in his cabinet. See, Biden isn't doing a damn thing. This guy is brain dead. He's all he's doing is standing there twiddling his thumb, picking his nose and eating it. And they and they have to like duct tape his hands down so he doesn't do stupid things with him when he when he gets filmed or, you know, does a does a uh, news spot. He wants to put the you just pick anybody who are the most hated people in the United States right now. Like in Michigan is a governor uh, Whitmer. She is one screaming communist. And, and refuses to do anything proper. She just wants to shut down the state and just sit back and smile because she did it. <laughs> she could do anything she wants. Well, he wants to put her in, her, in a key position in his, um, in his administration. As a matter of fact, the president of George Soros's Open Society Foundation, right? Another communist organization. Uh, Biden wants to put him in his cabinet as well. This is a big thing. There, and there will be a list out soon of the names of everyone that he wants in his cabinet. And I've seen in different different articles, I've seen this article shows, you know, 20 or 30 different people, and this article shows 20 or 30 different ones, and you put all, take all of them and you put them in, and the majority of them, like 90% of them, come from the Clinton cabinet and the Obamination cabinet. They worked for those two commies. So they want to get him in here again. National Security by the way, and we've been hearing a lot about this. National Security uh, is investigating, and the FBI has been investigating this spy named Feng Feng. It's a female. She has been, shall we say, screwing her way to the top. 
or just stay sideways because all she's doing is, is compromising all kinds of Democrats, one of which is Swalwell. This, this guy is, he's a commie. He hates Trump. He's a big mouth that all through this Russian thing was saying how Trump is evil and Trump is a Russian stooge and, and uh, gives secrets away to the Russians. Meanwhile, he's having sex with a, with a Chinese spy, telling her all kinds of stuff. In fact, one of her friends and co-spies is on his staff. Nancy Pelosi knows this and yet continues to uh, continues to say that she has no nothing no, no she didn't know nothing about this in any any way at all. National the NSI National Security Industry, all of them, has identified China as having a main connection to the Dominion voting machines. They've also identified China as our greatest threat to every facet of life in the United States. You know, if we took out China from the computation, there are a lot of products that we wouldn't have from China. You know what we would have? We would have workers in the United States that were proud of the products that they were turning out like they used to be. I remember in the 70s, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I wanted a pair of boots. Well, you go to the Union store. This is a store that was that all the products in there were made by members of different unions. Seamstress Union, uh, Bootmakers Union. I mean, they got all these different unions. And I went in there. I got a belt. Now, at the time, a belt you could pick up for five, five bucks, ten bucks maybe. This cost me 20 bucks. This belt I had for 20 years, then gave it to my son. I picked up a pair of boots in there. Those boots cost me $100. They were handmade by a union member. Those boots lasted me 20, 25 years, and I gave them away to somebody who needed a pair of boots. This is what would we would have in the United States out of necessity if we weren't getting cheap crap from China. This when when all of this started, I said, this is going to destroy small businesses. And yes, it has. And the Democrats said, well, that's not fast enough. So we're going to trump up some disease and we're going to destroy small business in a wholesale manner. And that's what they're doing. Tucker Carlson, he had a few episodes on this threat from China. So I've tied a couple of those uh, episodes together. You go ahead and listen. Many of the very people who ranted so hysterically about Russia were, even as they were doing it, even as they were yelling about Vladimir Putin, in fact, they were doing precisely what they claimed to decry. They were working on behalf of a foreign power, our chief global rival, the government of China. The Russia hoax effectively was a diversion. It hid something that is not a hoax at all but it is real and threatening to all of us. We're going to spend the foreseeable future reporting on the relationship between America's political and financial elites and the communist government of China that has made many of them very rich. But we want to start tonight with evidence, with a remarkable video. This video was recorded on November 28th. The man you're about to see speak is a professor from Beijing called Di Dong Cheng. The video comes from an appearance that he made on a Chinese television show about Wall Street and international trade. Di Dong Cheng works at Renmin University in Beijing. He is also, like so many in academia in China, a servant of his country's government. This video was deleted from Chinese social media soon after being uploaded, and there's a reason for that, as you'll see. 
There's a lot of garbage floating around on the internet right now, a lot of fake things. That video is real, and those subtitles are accurate. We checked today with two different Chinese speakers and confirmed that. What he just said, what you just read on the screen, tells the story. This is as close to a smoking gun as we have ever seen. Quote, we have people at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. According to the man you just saw, that has been true for decades. So who are these people and how many of them work in our media and in our government? Well, he didn't say precisely. At one point in the video, he described a Chinese agent working as a vice president at, quote, a top Wall Street financial institution. I can't say more, he explained, without making political trouble. Di Dongsheng did tell his audience that one agent in particular was especially useful, and he goes on at some length about her. He describes her as an American who's lived abroad for many years, who is now a Chinese citizen. And this seems to baffle him a little bit. The Chinese government doesn't allow dual citizenship. Why would they? Why would anyone? Di Zhongsheng seems pleased that the U.S. government is foolish enough to allow it. He explains that this American agent, who lives at least part of the year in Beijing, helped the Chinese government with a propaganda operation in the city of Washington in 2015. And he goes on to describe that in some detail. The Obama administration was easy to manipulate, he suggests. They helped. The Chinese had many friends among the Obama people. The problem came when Donald Trump was elected. After that, he says, everything changed. Since the 1970s, he said, and he's an economics professor, you should know, Wall Street has had enormous influence over the way the United States government operates, over American policy. The Chinese government, he says, has enormous influence on Wall Street. And that arrangement worked very well for a long time. Then Donald Trump unexpectedly was elected in 2016, and Wall Street was infuriated. Wall Street can't fix Trump, he said but they tried. And this solves the mystery. If you're wondering why our political class has stood by and allowed the Chinese government to degrade this country and our way of life, why they stood by as the Chinese government has flooded the United States with deadly opioids that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, or have stood by as the Chinese government ripped off billions in intellectual property from our companies, there's your answer. Earlier this year, the chairman of Harvard's chemistry department was arrested for taking $50,000 a month from the Communist Party of China in return for sending secrets and referring top scientists to Beijing. It barely rated as a scandal. You may not even be aware it happened. Why? Because so many are on the take, in effect. Donald Trump was an impediment to this very lucrative arrangement. And for that reason, Di Zhongsheng explains in the video, America's most powerful elites, and he calls them that, got to work on electing a new president. Oh, Donald Trump, he notes, because the Chinese do pay close attention to what we say here. Donald Trump has complained about Hunter Biden and his ties to the Chinese government. Those are real, he just confirms. So now you know why you weren't allowed to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. Why big business aligned as one the tech companies and the rest to suppress that story because they were implicated in it. Back in October, we interviewed a man called Tony Bobolinsky. We interviewed him because no one else would. Tony Bobolinsky was a business partner of the Bidens. Here's what he told us about China. 
and in a document that you guys have, and uh, I think it's been provided to you know to the world, the Chinese reference that because of their trust in uh, the Biden family, that Chairman Yi and Director Zhang are uh, excited about moving forward in this. And in that document, they reference loaning five million dollars to the BD family. Right. The BD family is the Biden family. What are the implications of this going forward? If Joe Biden is elected president, which could very well happen, how does this constrain his ability to deal with China? So I think Joe Biden and the Biden family are compromised. Looks like he was right about that. And it looks like the Bidens are far from the only ones who've been compromised. So last week in the Wall Street Journal, there was a kind of remarkable op-ed stating as clearly as anyone has ever stated the nature of the threat that we face from China. The op-ed was written by someone who would know the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe. He called the Communist Party of China, quote, the greatest threat to democracy and freedom worldwide since World War II. He wrote this, quote, the intelligence is clear. Beijing intends to dominate the United States and the rest of the planet economically, militarily, and technologically. I call its approach of economic espionage, rob, replicate, and replace. China robs U.S. companies of their intellectual property, replicates the technology, and then replaces the U.S. firms in the global marketplace. Now, those aren't simply legal disputes. They have actual consequences for millions of American workers on our standard of living, on what your kids will do for a living. Ratcliffe noted that in 2018, a Chinese wind turbine manufacturer ripped off trade secrets from a Massachusetts-based infrastructure company called American Semiconductor. As a direct result of that theft, American Semiconductor lost over a billion dollars in value and had to cut 700 jobs. Now, that didn't happen because the company, American Semiconductor, was careless. It happened because they were the victim of theft. That's happening everywhere, including in the Pentagon. According to Ratcliffe, quote, China also steals sensitive U.S. defense technology to fuel President Xi Jinping's aggressive plan to make China the world's foremost military power. U.S. intelligence shows that China has even conducted human testing on members of the People's Liberation Army in the hope of developing soldiers with biologically enhanced capabilities. There are no ethical boundaries to Beijing's pursuit of power. We know where this is leading, and Ratcliffe's op-ed spells it out. Quote, Beijing is preparing for an open-ended period of confrontation with the United States. Washington should also be prepared. Leaders must work across partisan divides to understand the threat, speak about it openly, and take action to address it. John Ratcliffe is the director of national intelligence, the man with more intelligence before him than anyone on the globe apart from the president. We're happy to have him on tonight. Director, thanks so much for coming on. You spell this out so clearly that it made me wonder why the rest of us, so many in our public life, haven't been saying this for quite some time. You make it sound obvious. Well, I think you did a good job of encapsulating why, Tucker. There are a lot of people who, for economic reasons, don't want China to be our greatest threat. There are a lot of people who, for political reasons, don't want China to be our greatest threat in America. But the intelligence doesn't lie. China is our greatest threat, and it's not even close. No other country has the capability of essentially taking away the American dream and a specific plan to do so. And the intelligence is clear. So, Tucker, I wanted to use the unique vantage point that I have to make sure the director of national intelligence, my job is to warn the American people of threats. And there is no greater threat than China to America. The most jarring part of the piece, I thought, was your description of the massive ramp up of the Chinese military. 
from your telling, not necessarily for defensive purposes. What do you think their aim is? Again, dominate militarily, technologically, uh, and economically. On the military front, they've already achieved having the largest Navy of any country in the world. From a military force standpoint, there are the People's Republic of China has a military of two million. They want them to be the largest, and they also want them to be the strongest, which is why they're engaged in what you reference, which is called gene editing, literally trying to alter the DNA, experimenting on DNA to make soldiers, sailors, and airmen stronger and more powerful. Do you think Beijing anticipates some kind of physical confrontation with the United States in, in the next several years? Well, here's the funny thing, Tucker, is... China knows at this point that the United States is still the world's superpower. They know they're catching us in all of those respects. They're banking on the fact that we're not going to do anything until they're superior in all those respects. You know, great generals always say it's better to fight downhill. Right now, the United States can fight downhill against China. We don't ever want to be in a position where we're looking up at China. And all of the plans that they have, all of the initiatives made in China, the Digital Silk Road, Belt and Road Initiative, those are all thin veneers and, and facades for which China is going around the world and essentially gaining the influence power to become the world's superpower and supplant the United States in that role. We heard a lot over the past four years about Russia's ability to break into John Podesta's Gmail account. To the extent you can, to the extent it's not classified, give us a sense of China's penetration into our networks, government networks. Well, it's significant and growing every day. And uh, Tucker, you made a great point in your opening about Russia. Listen, they are a, a dangerous adversary. I don't mean to minimize them, but you, you made the point correctly about economically. Russia can't compete the way China can. The largest economy in the world is the United States. The second largest is China. Russia's not in the top 10. Italy, Brazil, and the state of Texas have a larger economy than Russia. So as dangerous as Russia can be, they cannot compete with us the way China is. And China has a very specific plan to do that. One of the ways that China has made their way to the top is they understand that information is the key to their dominance. So they're going to get there any way they possibly can. That's what uh, subsidizing Huawei and ZTE is all about. Those are Chinese companies that are run by the Chinese government. They know that they can steal more information if they run the telecommunications networks over which our information travels. That's one of the ways that China has gotten so good in terms of getting into our networks and into our information society. Eric Swalwell who has used his office to promote Beijing's talking points, almost word for word. A man who admits to a close personal relationship with an actual Chinese spy who helped him get elected to Congress, raised money for him, and put an intern, probably another spy, in his office. That man continues to serve on the House Intelligence Committee, where he has unrestricted access to classified information. You can expect to see, now that the uh, mainstream media isn't so concerned about Trump anymore, you can see them start to put their attention on some matters that actually do affect everyone in the United States. And you're going to see them, they're doing this in, in a ploy to get your, your listenership back. They're doing it in a ploy to get your attention back to them. And they're going to be talking about how China has invaded the United States and, and how it's done this and that and these other bad things and, and how you're going to see it, all right? And I'm, I'm predicting that now. You're going to start seeing a lot more, not just from the alternative news, but China is our enemy, not just China. It's not, it's not China. It's not the country China. It's the communist Chinese. 
And unfortunately, every Chinese that comes from China is a communist. They're raised that way. It's not something that you can just eradicate from your psyche instantaneously. Even people who say they're freedom-loving, if they were raised in a communist regime, and their mothers were raised in that communist regime, and their mothers were raised, there are certain traits that pass down. There are certain things that you look away from. There are certain things you don't pay attention to because, well, it doesn't matter to you because it doesn't affect you directly. There's the difference between a communist and an American. A communist looks only at life as how it can affect them. An American looks at life as how their actions can affect them and others. That's the key. And others. All right, now we're going to get into election fraud. The mainstream media continues to deny the possibility of voting fraud in the 2020 election. However, footage from networks like CNN reveals a previously considered voting fraud a national security issue. Here's one America's Pearson Sharp. More and more evidence is piling up that Dominion voting machines are vulnerable to tampering and can be easily hacked. That means the results of our election are suspect and cannot be trusted without verification. This used to be common sense. We didn't need to be called called conspiracy theorists for thinking that mountains of evidence of voting fraud means you should probably do an investigation. We've collected a series of clips of the mainstream media, some from today after the 2020 election and others from back in 2006 when Democrats and the left-wing media actually claimed that voting fraud was a national security issue. Dominion has absolutely no corporate ties with George Soros or Venezuela, but that's not stopping Trump campaign attorney Sidney Powell from making the wild and totally unfounded claim that Dominion is somehow tied to Hugo Chavez. The U.S. company that makes the machines, Sequoia, was bought in 2005 by Smartmatic, a private company primarily owned by Venezuelan businessmen. It's an obvious play from, you know, Dirty Politics 101. I mean, Hugo Chavez, really? That's what we're going to talk yeah, about? That's I mean, right. that, that was the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. We were in the realm of ridiculousness there. When Chicago had problems with the machines, a dozen Venezuelan employees were there to help with the election. Chicago Chicago officials are outraged. I think that American elections ought to be run by American companies and ought to be run by American citizens, not Venezuelan nationals. It, it's frankly, it's just crazy stuff, tinfoil hat stuff. But the idea is that because of the software, somebody is able to go in and change the results. If somebody even wanted to do that, could they do that? You really can't miss it. The yellow button at the back of the Sequoia voting machine. Tens of thousands of machines used in 16 states and Washington. D.C. That button puts the machine in manual mode, so anyone can vote and repeatedly cast as many votes as they want. A company that has close, close ties with Venezuela and therefore China? False. Truth. Facts. They don't seem to matter to Giuliani. Fewer than a dozen Smartmatic employees work in Florida. The majority of the workers are based in Venezuela. Watchdog groups question why U.S. voting machines would be under the control of citizens of another country, especially a country whose own election process is highly suspect. We believe this is a national security issue. There is no way that companies belonging to non-U.S. corporations should have access to our elections. 
when you hear the president, and I, I want to put your politics completely out of this for a second, but I, I will bring it up in a moment for one reason. But poll workers in Michigan duplicating ballots, jumping in front to, to block results. What do you even say to that? I worry about the poll captains having access. They're temporary workers. They're, in many cases, there aren't background checks done on them. And it's easy for them to go back there, make those changes and vote repeatedly and not be noticed. This is why the mainstream media can't be trusted and why, if you're listening to them, you're intentionally being misled. So quickly, let's do a tally of the mainstream media's hypocrisy on voting fraud. Today, they're telling us that our voting machines have no ties with Venezuela. But just a few years ago, these same people said our voting machines were, quote, bought by Smartmatic, which is primarily owned by Venezuelan businessmen. Today, it's in the realm of ridiculousness to say that Hugo Chavez could ever have anything to do with our voting machines. But jump back again, and they literally said these are the same machines used by Hugo Chavez in his elections. Now, the mainstream media says, quote, it's a tinfoil hat theory for someone to believe that it's possible to change the results of an election. And once again, barely a decade ago, they told us that by just pressing a button on the back of the machines, anyone could vote as many times as they wanted. Now, they call this a conspiracy theory. But back then, they called it a national security issue. This is a 2016 headline straight from leftist news rag Politico called How to Hack an Election in Seven Minutes, which they say is nothing more than child's play. And then here's a headline from today calling voting fraud a crazy and confoundingly successful conspiracy theory. Obviously, they don't read their own headlines. It should be clear by now that the mainstream media has no intention of telling you the truth and just want to convince you of their version of events. However, One American News believes the American people have a right to know what's happening. You're going to love this. See, the Democrats are world famous for over 100 years of finding the exact amount of votes they need to beat the enemy, which is anyone but a Democrat. So, and this is in New York. This is this is in... Um, 22nd Congressional District, Republican Claudia Tenney was leading the Democrat Rep. Anthony Brindisi by 12 votes. 12 votes. She was ahead by 12 votes. And guess what they just found? 12 votes for the Democrat. They just found 12 more votes. You know, I thought it was a, it, it thought it was an election night or election day, not an election week. Now, something came to light pertaining to this governor, uh, Governor Kemp. He's supposed to be a Republican. He's supposed to be, uh, he's, he's a, the governor of Georgia, and uh, he's just simply bought off. And it turns out he awarded a $107 million contract to Dominion which is owned by the Communist Chinese, two weeks after meeting with People's Republic of China Consul General. Two weeks after this guy met with the Communists, he awarded them a $107 million contract for the Dominion voting systems. This is the swamp. This is the swamp. There's no question about it. And as I read last week, I talked about the different tribes, the American tribes and anti-American tribes, and about who makes up the population of each. Some forensic 
well, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what you call these people, but these are these are forensic investigators. They actually got a hold of a Dominion machine, and they put a hundred votes in there. They put a hundred ballots in there that read Biden, and a hundred ballots that read Trump. Now you've probably heard about how these machines aren't counting ballots one, two, three, four, five. They're counting like three percent, ten percent. 82%. What the hell does that mean? Well, here's what's going on. In actual alg- algorithmic terms, it means that a vote for Trump was counted as 87%. You got that? A vote for Trump was 87%. A vote for Biden was 113%. That's how he can, on equal amount of votes, that's how Biden got out ahead. I have the data on this. You can go look at it yourself. Oh, the, uh, the the representative for Fulton County, by the way, of Dominion, and and this is this is in Georgia. Was you're going to like this? Is a good friend of Kamala Harris, and was her presidential photographer, campaign photographer. See, see how all the birds of a feather kind of flocked together there. There's this guy that started Overstock. Overstock.com. And I bought stuff from there. He's a, you can't call him a millionaire because this guy's a billionaire. Well, he decided to do something with it. He's also a, a staunch conservative. So when he realized that there was something funky going on with uh, the voting he decided to hire people to find out what is going on. As media continues to ignore claims of election fraud, one millionaire has set out to prove their cover-up in support of the truth. One America's Chanel Rion reports. Patrick Byrne, founder and former CEO of Overstock.com, has long considered himself a libertarian tech entrepreneur. Byrne now finds himself more than entrepreneur. He's on a mission to save the republic from a deadly virus, widespread machine and software election fraud. He's doing this by funding a niche group of experts, and the Trump legal team has been listening. You've put together a group of individuals who are trying to crack down on the fraud that is Dominion. Tell us more about what you've been doing. I funded a team of hackers and cyber sleuths and other people with odd skills. We've been on this since August. One side story to be pursued someday is this, the DHS was warned of all this in August and September. We tried very hard and it was all crammed down. And I mean from high levels. The experts Byrne is funding is an elite cybersecurity team that has been hired by the state of Texas to investigate a series of irregularities in the Dallas elections of 2018. The team consisted of members with backgrounds in military intelligence and federal law enforcement. Byrne says the election irregularities in Dallas 2018 was rooted in Dallas's use of Dominion voting machines. This group has been on Dominion's trail over two years. I've been up there since with them since August and expanding and funding further and deeper investigations. So we really, I felt, kind of had the answer when everyone woke up November 4th and saying what happened. We couldn't quite believe we couldn't get anyone to listen to us. Their findings include a detailed list of impossibilities, Dominion machines processing more ballots than is physically possible, real-time data showing 
showing Biden vote dumps that are statistically impossible and dozens of backdoor ways in which votes by the thousands could be changed, manipulated or deleted. When you get talking about thousands of votes in a row for one candidate, just to give you the mathematical odds against it, if you're talking about a group that has a 96% affinity for Biden, so imagine we're talking about very heavily Biden ward, the chance of having 100 votes in a row for Biden, if if the chance of every vote is 96% for Biden, the chance you would have 100 in a row is about 1.6%. The chances you would have 1,000 in a row, like a couple quadrillion to one, and the chances that you would have the kinds of numbers we're seeing where there are places where there were tens of thousands of votes in a row for Biden. The chances are quadrillions of quadrillions against that could ever happen in nature. You didn't necessarily vote. You did not vote for Donald Trump. You are a libertarian. That's correct. And you are doing this. Why? I've never voted Republican or Democrat in my life. This is about the Constitution. These are goons. If we lose this moment, the Constitution's done. We're never back. We're never have a free election again. I've spoken to your your guys behind the scenes. They're, they seem very knowledgeable and they've pulled incredible data. Are you seeing a clear pattern between the major swing states in this regard? It's more than a clear pattern. We know exactly what happens. It's just a matter of how quickly can we get it all built up and explained and such. But it's absolutely clear. There's no there's no shades of gray about this. Byrne says the election was 100% rigged and it's not just real-time data proving this. We have more than uh, the data. We have the data. We have hundreds of affidavits. We have been, we've also have people gathering and organizing that effort. And we have the analysis of the equipment itself. So that's really the three buckets. And we're getting it out. We're first feeding it to those who want it, which are basically uh, Sydney's and Rudy's people. I want to emphasize we're not on either team. We're, we're independent. To that end, Byrne, as a free agent, has been feeding his group's intel and findings to any group who can use Use it in court against Dominion. It's supporting anyone who wants the data, and I'm putting it up on my own website, which is called Deep Capture. I'm mm-hmm. putting these different stories and facts and write-ups on there, so anyone can go there and find them. But this isn't even close. I want to assure people that this isn't even close. If you could freeze time and let this all play out through the courts, what would be exposed is 100% clear this whole thing was rigged. One American News seems to be the only place that I can find that actually has some professionals doing some heavy-duty digging in. And, and there was a you heard the, a little article in the beginning here from Pierce. Well, here's another one that breaks it down a lot cleaner. No matter what you hear on the mainstream media, keep this one thing in mind. Joe Biden has not won the election. Big Tech will probably put a label on this report claiming this information is disputed and then censor the story. It doesn't matter. The harder they try and cover up the facts, the more their desperation shows, which just proves one thing. They're scared. The sham they've been perpetrating since November 3rd is going to come crashing down. If this were any other election at any other time in America's history, officials on both sides of the aisle would be outraged over the staggering evidence of voting fraud. But this isn't any other time, and this isn't an election between President Trump and Joe Biden. This is an election between President Trump and the globalists who want to carve up America and sell it 
to the highest bidder. There are vast amounts of evidence that foreign entities have meddled in this election, not the least of which is China, a nation with an obvious interest in getting rid of President Trump and putting in someone who's easy to control. Maybe someone whose family has already accepted over a billion dollars from the communist Chinese government. Someone like Joe Biden? So let's take a second and break down the election and see exactly where things stand. While many states have already been called for the predictable winners, there are six key battleground states where the levels of fraud are off the charts. Let's start with Nevada, because that was one the Democrats thought they'd win handily. The official story is that Biden won the state by 33,000 votes. That's a good margin. Should be a clear win, except it's not. It turns out about 1,500 people who voted in Nevada's elections are dead. Another 2,500 changed their addresses to another state or even another country. Some 6,000 voters were flagged by the post office as having vacant addresses. 8,000 voters cast ballots from addresses don't even exist. 15,000 people somehow voted from vacant or commercial properties. 20,000 voters somehow cast their ballots from out-of-state addresses. And the big one, a whopping 42,000 voters successfully voted twice in the election. Now, even without knowing who all these people voted for, Republicans and Democrats should want to get this cleared up and ensure our election integrity is being maintained, not just when your guy is winning. So they say Joe Biden is up in Nevada by 33,000 votes. Well, right there, that is 95,000 fraudulent votes, which should automatically put the state back in the running for President Trump. But Nevada isn't alone. It's a similar situation in Pennsylvania, where Biden won by 81,000 votes. But the thousands of dead and out-of-state voters in Pennsylvania add up fast and in the end come out to some 121,000 fraudulent ballots cast in the election. It's the same story in Wisconsin, where Joe Biden apparently won by 20,000 votes. But in reality, some 200,000 fraudulent ballots were cast in Wisconsin, again, totally erasing Biden's lead. In Arizona, the AP called the election for Biden, claiming he was up by 10,000 votes. But Arizona is even worse than Wisconsin, with over 300,000 fraudulent or questionable ballots cast in the state. In Michigan, Biden is reportedly up by 154,000 ballots. But that's only until you count the more than half a million fraudulent ballots that have trickled in since Election Day. And then, of course, there's Georgia, where Biden somehow managed to swing the bright red peach state to blue, coming in ahead with 12,000 votes. Except that now we have mountains of evidence of voting fraud, including Republican poll watchers being forced to leave under false pretenses so that poll workers could count secret stashes of ballots unobserved hours. It's worth mentioning, during that time, the number of votes for Biden skyrocketed while those for Trump simultaneously plummeted. That leaves Georgia with more than 200,000 fraudulent votes, meaning Biden is clearly not the winner. This is the situation we're dealing with. The evidence for fraud is greater than it ever has been, and yet the mainstream media and Democrats are completely ignoring it. Or worse, they're actually complicit in covering up the greatest election fraud in American history, all with the goal of undermining democracy and overthrowing the duly elected president of the United States. Until we have answers for these very real and very serious questions, our voting integrity is not secure, our democracy is not safe, and this election is not over. For One America News, I'm Pearson Sharp.
You know who Sydney Powell is. That's uh, she's an attorney that is fighting. She's heavy duty. She's she's big league. She's not lightweight. She's been f- fighting uh, this this uh, vote steal since the night of the election. And in her co- collecting of the data that she's been doing and her team's been doing, they realize that the Democrats have been stealing elections for decades and decades. House seats, Senate seats, governorships, and more. And nobody paid attention to it. People just said, you know, I don't know what happened, but it just all of a sudden flipped over. You know, I'm going to tell you something. My brother ran for, for Congress years ago in California, in the same district where Congressman Gary Condit ran. Con- Congressman Gary Condit is gutter trash. He's the perfect example of Democrat. So my brother couldn't get a lot of money from the Republican Party because the Republican Party in that section of California, their attitude was, why try will only fail. So it was just, his money came from people like me and other people who donated to him directly. During the election time, when people were going in and out of the polls, they were doing, uh, you know, they got these people outside taking uh, poll samples saying, you know, did you vote for Steve? Who did you vote for? You don't have to answer, blah, blah, blah. At the time, that night, my brother was 70, he was up 70%. He had 70% of the votes of the people that came out. 70%. So about 9 o'clock, he uh, went to bed. He was beat. Woke up the next morning. Congressman Condit won at 69%. Just magic. It totally flipped around. And everybody was like, well, that sounds kind of strange. My brother goes to the Republican National Committee and says, look, we got to do a recount. Nah, it's not worth it. So they wouldn't do a recount. But I have firsthand experience in this. Democrats have been doing this now for over 100 years, not just decades. They lie. They, they cheat. They steal. And it's not some of them do this. All of them do this. It is the most disgusting thing I've ever, ever seen. Uh, Sidney Powell comes out and says, there's no telling how many congressional and Senate seats and governorships we've lost because of this fraud. They've been telling us that the country has been trending blue, which means people are now becoming more and more communist. Nope, that's an abject lie. We have the data. And this is, American elections are just as rigged as elections in any third world country. This is... I don't know. This has got so many people upset. And this is a this upset. This kind of upset is not just political. What we're looking at is a combination of ideologies. One of them is American. People want to have their own life. They want to own their home. They want to have a good job. They want to get training so that they can they can go forward in life and uh, and have a life. You know, years ago, I decided I wanted to be a gunsmith. I busted my butt getting the training and then contracted myself as a contract gunsmith, a corporate gunsmith, and started working on thousands and thousands of guns, revolvers, semi-automatic handguns, rifles, shotguns. I've worked on thousands and thousands and thousands of firearms. That's what it takes. But... You see, if you're a victim, you don't have to do that because you're going to get paid anyway. 
You know, if you if you decide that you want to be a, a victimized black and, and stay on the Democrat plantation the rest of your life, that's fine. They don't mind that. As long as you vote for them, they don't care. If you want criminal aliens to break through the border, they don't even have to break through the border. They just simply walk up to the door and say, let me in. Okay, fine. Make sure you vote Democrat. Well, this this stealing of elections is tradition with Democrats. And their ideology is very simple. You are too stupid to rule yourself. You are too dangerous to rule yourself. You are unethical. You're not fair. There's people out there who are hungry and you have more food than you need. From each according to his ability to each according to their need. Where have I heard that before? Hmm. That's what a Democrat is. And it's, you know, you obviously you have different levels. You have the elites, which are the politicians. And then you have the minions, which are the voters. And the voters are so happy that everyone else has got their face rubbed in it. Because now Biden's president. The uh, Wall Street likes the idea because he's too damn stupid to know what he's going to do, and there's nobody in there's nobody in his going to be in his cabinet that is smart enough to understand how capitalism works. You know, it's like it's like a prostitute explaining to somebody what a virgin is, and and how great it is to be a virgin. They they don't understand what the hell they're talking about, so that's why Wall Street likes it, but I don't. And I'm very worried for what's left of small businesses in the United States. See, I, I'm different. Survival enterprises, we're different. Uh, we don't take Schumer from anyone. We're not in a Schumer business. So when they tell me to close, I tell them, uh, eat Schumer. When they tell me to put a mask on, I tell them to eat Schumer. In fact, I, my son's putting up a sign today that says, uh, masks not allowed <laughs> in the store. Uh, you know... I don't know. Anyway, there is a website uh, that I have, and I post it on each one of my uh, each one of my show notes pages. It's called HereIsTheEvidence.com. I haven't checked it today, but last week when I did my show, they had eleven hundred verified election fraud incidents. Eleven hundred, and they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going. Saturday they had a hearing in front of the the. Uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court with so much data, so much proof, so much verification of election fraud. This is not, uh, let's see, driving without insurance type thing. You know, you get a slap on a wrist and a couple hundred dollar fine or what have you. No, this is violation of the Constitution of the United States of America. This is a federal crime. It's a felony. But these people... Well, they're not going to be punished because the people who would punish them are Democrats. You know, that's that's the problem with a drone society. You have this tribe called Democrats, right? They all act exactly the same. If all you have to know is that that person's a Democrat, you'll know exactly how they're going to act. The criminal tendencies. The, the end justifies the means. So they're all the same. Unfortunately... Americans are different. Everybody's, all Americans are different. I don't consider a Democrat an American in any way, shape, or form because they're anti-American. 
But all Americans are different. They, you know, they, they, they have their own attitudes. They have their own ideas. Uh, some of them get together and form a, a group. That's fine. But most of the time, they're lone wolves, which makes us real dangerous. And the Democrats know that. We're dangerous. They know that. That's why they got to take our guns, because, well, we're just dangerous. <laughs> now, this is, I know this is going to be hard this Christmas season to have the concept of charity. It's not something that everybody's looking forward to, I can tell you right now. But this is the time of year that is well known for charitable acts. Many people donate at work. Uh, Many people have an automatic donation to the Red Cross or some other phony organizations like that. And I say phony because the Red Cross is a money-making. They make money. They what is 60 cents out of a dollar with the Red Cross goes towards helping people? You know, when you donate blood to the Red Cross, they turn around and sell it. Anyway, you need to pay attention to where you're going to be giving your money. And and I've always said, give it to the Salvation Army. Now, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to play my Salvation Army show here. This is me talking about the Salvation Army how they helped my family when I was a child. They are the very first people to show up every time there's some kind of a disaster. They are the first. Not the second. They are the first. So listen to this, and I hope you decide to help them this year. I don't know if there's going to be any bell ringers out there, or uh, are you going to have to donate directly online? But I'll have uh, their their uh, website up to where you can, if you wish, Donate on their website. Have you ever heard this music before? I did when I was a kid. Every Sunday we'd go to the Salvation Army Church in San Francisco for supplies. And we'd watch the band play and listen. Oh, it was great. They had, I don't know, maybe they had 100 people in this band. But it was phenomenal, especially for a kid. And there were hundreds and hundreds of other people standing around with us. Let me tell you the story. We lived in Sunnyvale. Uh, when I was uh, under 10 years old, I'd come home from school one day, and there was my dad packing all his stuff in his car, gave me his war medals and said, nice knowing you, and he took off. So there's my mom with three kids that she's got to take care of. And a house, for that matter, too. Well, a couple uh, parakeets and and some weird fish. Now, all of a sudden, she's got to get work. She she He just left her all high and dry. There was no welfare at the time. We survived on what uh, Grandma and Grandpa could give us and our, and my, my uh, mother's brothers and and friends. And, and then one day... My mom put us all in a car on Sunday and said, uh, we we got to go to San Francisco. There's some people there that can help us. So we get to San Francisco. It was a nice little drive. Only took about, I don't know, 30 minutes at the time. Now it take you 30 minutes to go a block in that area. But uh, we got there, and, and uh, I heard band playing. And we got to the uh, the area, and it was a beautiful little church. There was a band outside, a bunch of people in uniforms playing music. So we stood there for about a half an hour listening to them with music. And while we were standing there, there were other people coming up uh, and and uh, joining us. Next thing I know, there are hundreds of people standing there. And I'm thinking, this band isn't that good. Well, my mom explained, this is the Salvation Army. 
and they help people. They were uh, set up by the U.S. government to help hand out staples of foods to people who are needy. See, this is the time when our government actually cared about the people, and we kept in storage, meaning our government kept in storage, excess food that we could live on in an emergency. And this food was not lightweight stuff. This was like uh, 10-pound cans of flour, five-pound jars of peanut butter, five pounds of cornflakes, cheese, non-fat dried milk, big containers of this stuff. And what they do is they'd cycle it out because they didn't want it to go stale. So they would hand this out, and they gave it to the Salvation Army nationwide to hand out once a month. So this is what my mom meant when she, she told us we're, we're going to San Francisco and there's some people there to help us. So the Salvation Army was helping us. And we got big boxes full of all of this stuff. And I remember some, some days all we had to eat and take to school for, for lunches was peanut butter rolls dipped in cornflakes. Now, I thought that was kind of cool. So did my friends. They thought my mom was was a genius for dreaming that up. But that's all we had to eat because that food had to stretch. Well, my mom ended up getting three different jobs and being able to afford the family. Finally, we stopped going to the Salvation Army. But I never forgot that as a child. To this day, that's who I give to. I do not donate to anybody else. I donate to them. And I'd like you to understand who the Salvation Army is. They're not just a bunch of guys or girls who are scamming people. This is something that's real, and it's been around since 1865. So I got a little clip here that's going to explain a lot of it to you. I see them at Christmas time, out ringing the bells. I've seen their bands playing at the mall, and there's angel trees. The Salvation Army? Oh, the bell, the ringing of the bell. I think those bell ringers uh, are all around the world. Oh, yeah, they're those people with the ringing the bells outside of Walmart during Christmas. Um, I guess I guess after they uh, they collect that money, it goes to different community service programs, although I don't exactly know what they're for. I would think historically of the uniform, although I believe they're not using that anymore. Don't they ring the bells at Christmas time? I, I really don't know what the Salvation Army is. I reckon they kind of recycle old clothes and furniture and stuff? I guess the thing it's most known for among people in my age group at least is uh, the thrift shops. I think of a church. It's a church. Oh, how old the army is. Uh, gee, you know, judging by the uniforms of the guy out in front of my grocery store, I would say at least the 50s. The bell ringers in front of the store. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. And in the empire of the young Queen Victoria, in the dank and putrid world of industrial England, the story of the Salvation Army begins. It begins with a boy, a tall, stoop-shouldered pawnbroker's apprentice, a character worthy of Charles Dickens, the great author of the day. The story of the Salvation Army begins within the heart of William Booth. At 13 years of age, William had been taken out of school and apprenticed to a pawnbroker. His father, an illiterate house builder, impoverished himself and died, leaving the family penniless. 
desperately poor himself, William had to deal with the desperate poverty of others. Under the sign of the pawnbroker, he learned more than the pricing of cotton umbrellas or the deft handling of pawn tickets. He learned, as from a primer, what poverty did to people. Families appeared before this boy to pledge their worn and dwindling possessions, pitiful little trinkets. Sunday silk handkerchiefs went first to the counter. Wedding rings came last. Over and over, his mother would say to him, "Be good, William, and then all will be well." But how was he to be good? The Church of England, where he had been baptized, was a cold and formal place, a place where the rich had their allotted pews, and the poor were not welcome. John Wesley, the giant reformer of religion in England, had been dead some forty years. His followers had broken away from the Church of England and formed separate sects. When, as a giddy youth of fifteen, I was led to attend Wesley Chapel, Nottingham, I felt that I wanted, in place of the life of self-indulgence to which I was yielding myself, a happy, conscious sense that I was pleasing God. Living right, spending all my powers to get others into such a life. The condition of the suffering people around me affected me very deeply. There were children crying for bread, to parents whose own distress was little less terrible. In the 18th century, John Wesley sought to reclaim men without God, the downtrodden, and the desperate who cursed life itself. This fragile little minister, educated at Oxford. Took the radical step of preaching in the open air to crowds of drunken miners, a pile of stones as his pulpit. I thought that there was one God, that John Wesley was his prophet, and that the Methodists were his special people. In a schoolroom of the Wesleyan Chapel was a plain wooden table, and at that table people were kneeling, confessing their sins, and surrendering their lives to God. Pale, thin, and nervous, the boy knelt at their side. I made up my mind that God Almighty should have all their wives of William Booth. I heard the first sermon he ever preached. It was in a small cottage in Kid Street. He had come straight from work. There was a box placed upside down on the table for a desk, with a candle and a Bible. Poor women came into the parlour, bringing their own chairs with them. Some men stood in the doorway, afraid to come in lest they be converted. Will Booth's sermon, ah,、oh, how well I remember it! It was very gentle and tender, and so strange for a young man to preach that it almost made some of the women smile. He talked of little children learning to walk, how they toddled and swayed and came near to falling. He said how difficult a thing it was to learn to trust their tiny feet and advance with courage. Then he said it was just as difficult to lead a true Christian life, and that we should be on the lookout for helping people, especially those who were just beginning to live that life. Hard words would not help them; sitting still would not help them. We must go and do something to make it less hard for them to walk straight. I heard a very different sermon in Red Lion Square. I remember how he called out in his great voice, "Friends." I want to put a few straight questions to your souls. Have any of you got a child at home without shoes to its little feet? Are your wives sitting now in dark houses, waiting for you to return 
without money? Are you going away from here to the public houses to spend on drink, money that your wives need for food, and your children for food? It was all like that. I think there had never been such preaching in the open streets before. After six years, his apprenticeship ended. Unable to find work, he moved to London, where he was desperately lonely. And the only job to be found was in a pawn shop. He settled above the shop. And soon after, he sought opportunities to preach in the nearby Wesleyan Chapel. His zeal was not always appreciated. But Edward Rabbits, a wealthy boot manufacturer, heard him preach and was so impressed, he offered to support William for three months if he would devote himself solely to preaching. On Good Friday, April 10th, 1851, his 23rd birthday, William accompanied Mr. Rabbits to a service in a schoolroom. There, he fell in love with Catherine Mumford. After the meeting, Booth escorted Miss Mumford to her home by Hackney Coach. That little journey will never be forgotten by either of us. He impressed me, and we struck in at once in such a wonderful harmony of view and aim and feeling that it seemed as though we had intimately known and loved each other for years. Before we reached my home, we both suspected, we felt as though we had been made for each other, and that henceforth the current of our lives must flow together. Catherine Mumford, four months older than William, was the only daughter, while three of her four brothers died as infants. Semi-invalid due to a spinal defect, Catherine absorbed education in solitude, reading and forming her own judgments. The Bible was her earliest lesson book. Before she was 12, she had read it from cover to cover eight times. Her likes and dislikes were equally strong. She hated worldliness, cruelty, and intoxicants. She loved animals, the truth, and the downtrodden. The earliest desire of these two young people not to allow any thought of their own happiness to interfere with their duty to God delayed their marriage for three years. William accepted an invitation to become circuit minister in an area that spread 30 miles. Catherine's letters sustained him. My dearest William, your desire is to do the will of God and he will guide you. Never mind who frowns if God smiles. My own dear Catherine, I feel uncommonly tired and weary this morning. My head aches and I feel altogether out of order. I walked home from Greenwich last night. I ought to have ridden. My dearest love, I have read your letter again since writing the enclosed and have opened the envelope to send you another line. Don't sit up singing till 12 o'clock after a hard day's work. Such things are not required by either God or man. And remember, you are not your own. My dearest Kate, I want a sermon on the flood, one on Jonah, and one on the judgment. Nothing moves people like the terrific. On one subject, there was a sharp difference of opinion. I would not encourage a woman to begin preaching, although I would not stop her on any account. Oh, prejudice, what it will not do. That woman is in any respect except physical strength and courage inferior to man, I cannot see cause to believe. 
and I'm sure no one can prove it from the word of God. I am for the world's salvation. I will quarrel with no means that promises help. On June 16, 1855, they were married. After one week's honeymoon, they began a whirlwind tour of Lincoln, Bristol, Bradford, Manchester, Sheffield. Within months, all these cities felt the cyclone impact of Booth's personality. The first three of their eight children were born in different towns. In Gateshead, a town nicknamed the Converting Shop due to the impact of William, Catherine began working with alcoholic men. Within a few weeks, ten of these men had turned away from drinking and met her each week for Bible reading and prayer. Catherine was a very liberated woman for her time. So when she heard an inner voice telling her to preach, she knew God was speaking to her. With great fear and trepidation, she acted on it and found that William and the Gateshead congregation welcomed her preaching enthusiastically. It was the first sultry week of July, and Booth was invited to preach in a tent in the old burying ground in Whitechapel. For all the crusading years of his life, he had sought a human jungle. Now he walked in its midst. London's 100,000 pubs laid end to end would have stretched a full 30 miles. In East London, every fifth shop was a gin shop. Beer shops were open 18 hours a day. A man could become drunk for a penny. For liquor, parents neglected their children. Girls sold their virtue. Men became criminals. He saw five-year-olds blind drunk in doorways. William Booth did not look upon the wretched scene of his day as a social worker might today. Only, and always, he saw the salvation of the soul as the answer to man's need. If a man righted himself with God, all would be well. When I saw those masses of poor people, so many of them without God or hope in the world, my heart went out to them. I walked back to our West End home and said to my wife, Oh, Kate... I found my destiny. These are the people for whose salvation I've been longing all these years. I remember the emotion this produced in my soul. I sat gazing at the fire, and the devil whispered to me, This means another departure, another start in life. After a momentary pause for thought and prayer, I replied, Well, if you feel you ought to stay, stay. We have trusted in the Lord once for our support, and we can trust him again. That night, the Salvation Army was born. The Whitechapel experience was like preaching in hell, for the atheism of East London was fierce, an atheism that hated the very name of God. Mr. Booth, he shouted at them finally, and then he gave out a hymn and led the singing until he just drowned out their noise. It seemed as if he'd tear the soul right out of your body. And then in the midst of it all, there'd be a bit that would make you want to cry. Or a tale that would set your laughing fit to burst. But all the time you felt he wanted to save your soul. There was no mistake about that. He began his preaching in the open air, on the long strip of pavement called the Mile End Waste. In all sorts of weather, this tall stranger talked about their souls. After 12 months of unflagging work, his converts tallied only 60, but the work went on. Wealthy philanthropists came staunchly to the rescue. Samuel Morley, a manufacturer, wrote a check as his first annual contribution, 
and asked his friends, a bacon merchant, an Edinburgh tea merchant, and two brothers who were Cardiff shipowners, to do the same. Professor Orson's dancing academy was secured for indoor services. The East London Christian Mission, as they were now called, met in a stable, an old beer house, a lime house, and a wool warehouse. The wind has opened onto the streets, and if we opened them, boys threw stones and fireworks through. But our people got used to this shouting, Hallelujah, when the crackers exploded. Like his hero John Wesley, he saw himself as a link between the churches and the unchurched. My first thought was to constitute an evangelistic agency, the converts going to the churches. But to this there were three main obstacles. First, they would not go where they were sent. Second, they were not wanted when they did go. Third, I soon found I wanted them myself. They put me to work right away. We had open-air meetings, and I remember having to stand conspicuously in my own street. They also gave me sick visiting to do. William and Catherine could not ignore the physical needs of the people they encountered each day. The mission's first report of 1867 shows how they responded. 16-year-old Bramwell Booth, the eldest, ran a small chain of food-for-the-millions shops which gave the poor hot soup at all hours and three-course dinners for sixpence. These were revolutionary activities at the time and came about as a compassionate response to people in need. Not the religion of stained glass windows and the music of Bach, but of soap and a square meal with noise, cheerful songs, and everyone so busy they could not be bored. People go for funny drinks and down and buy the pail Like coffee, cocoa, tea or milk or even Adam's ale For my part you can keep the lot, I never would complain I never touch the blooming stuff I only drink champagne Who hired the Effingham Theatre on Sunday evenings and advertised for 3,000 people to come and fill it? Crowds of idle and dissolute characters filled the theatre, but he held their attention. And then Booth and his early Salvationists did more than take over the actual theatre. They took over the music as well. Booth felt that if a man was happy and he had discovered his saviour, then why not use a tune that everybody knew to let everyone know? So, Champagne Charlie became this. Bless his name, he sets me free. Bless his name, he sets me free. Oh, the blood, the precious blood, I'm trusting in the cleansing flood. Bless his name, he sets me free. Bless his name, he sets me free. I know the past is washed away. And now in Jesus I am free. In Jesus I am free. I'm free. Over 80 music hall songs acquired religious lyrics. And Booth declared... Why should the devil have all the best tunes? From the first, the entire family was in the thick of it, 
With infinite care, the children were fitted to life, not with the ministry, but into it. Our mother used to patch our clothes and make us proud of the patches. Until the mission was two years old, Catherine held her own series of evangelistic meetings exclusively in the West End and raised great sums of money for the work. When we were little, there were those who condoled with us because we saw so little of our mother. It was so unusual for a woman to go onto the public platform that her work was not understood. We really saw more of our mother than did those children whose mothers were society women who went on the rounds of endless calls, attended balls and receptions. We were impressed by her example and tried to be like her. I remember the first Christmas day I spent in their home. The general determined that his children should have a thoroughly old-fashioned Christmas. The children were full of excitement and I, I really thought it would be a day of the purest happiness. But when the general returned from preaching in Whitechapel on Christmas morning, he looked dreadfully white and drawn as if he had some grievous worry. Oh, he did his best to enter into the fun and frolic, but it was no use. He kept relapsing into silence and gloom. And suddenly he burst out, I'll never have a Christmas like this again. Paced up and down like a caged lion, telling us the sights he'd seen that morning at Whitechapel. The poor have nothing but the public house. Sights that other people would see, feel sorry for and forget, would, would stab him to the heart. Other people would see only the drinking. He saw the poverty, the misery, the disease. The sins of London didn't shock him. They seemed to tear at his heart with claws that drew blood. True to his word, that Christmas day was the last one the Booth family ever spent together. The next Christmas, Bramwell and the others ranged the slums distributing plum puddings cooked in the Booth kitchen. It was a foreshadowing of the millions of Christmas dinners the army would later distribute in the white chapels of the world. Booth's movement had been growing more quickly than even he had intended. Weekly operating costs, which in 1870 were 50 pounds a week, grew so fast that in 10 years the poor alone contributed 14,500 pounds weekly. Booth had done the directing, recording and bookkeeping, with Bramwell as his aide. Organized help was needed. We had to build the ship while we're at sea, and not only build the ship, but master the laws of navigation. George Scott Railton was 24 years old when he arrived to take up his position as secretary to Booth. Railton was a lovable eccentric, capable of laughing until the tears ran down his face. Indifferent to sacrifice, he would preach until he was hoarse, and pray until his knees were petrified. In 1878, William, Bramwell, and Railton were checking an article for the Christian Mission's annual report. The Christian Mission, it said, is a volunteer army. Bramwell interrupted to say, I'm not a volunteer, I'm a regular or nothing. William stopped short, thought hard for a moment, and seized his pen. He crossed out, volunteer, salvation. The idea caught on like wildfire. Uniforms were adopted. Members became soldiers. Soldiers fired cartridges with their weekly donations. Evangelists were captains and majors serving in local corps and working from a citadel. Salvationists did not die. They were promoted to glory. And William Booth was no longer general superintendent, but the general of the Salvation Army. The new army found its way across the sea when Amos Shirley, with his wife and 16-year-old daughter, Eliza, Salvationist from Coventry, England, 
settled in Philadelphia and opened fire in an abandoned chair factory. Eliza wrote the general of their work and asked him to send reinforcements. Dear Eliza, if you're determined to start a religious work in America, you will do well to organize it along the line of the army. If you do this, you have my permission to call it the Salvation Army. General William Booth. It's 1880, just 15 years after the Salvation Army's birth. New York newspapers recorded the arrival of a young man in full military uniform, accompanied by what were described as seven hallelujah lassies. His name was George Scott Railton, and he claimed to have orders from General William Booth of the Salvation Army to begin the Army's work in the United States. Near the docks in Battery Park, Railton and the seven lassies attracted considerable attention with their singing and their preaching. He claimed he was ordered to wage war against evil and despair, and then he marched all who would follow to Mrs. Doolittle's Five Points mission. In the summer of 1880, as the Army's first commissioner, Railton traveled 4,200 miles in 49 days, delivering 80 messages. In the fall, he moved national headquarters, which was only a few papers, a table, a chair, and a bedstead in the basement, to St. Louis, Missouri. In St. Louis, he issued the first war cry. Commissioner Railton strongly believed that any expansion of the work must come from new converts recruited from within the countries invaded. The general ordered him home a year later because in Britain in the early 1880s, the opposition was fierce. Salvationists had campaigned hard against excessive drinking. Many pubs came close to ruin. Heavy drinkers turned to God. A skeleton army was organized to disrupt open-air meetings, and Salvationists were pelted with rotten food, mud, and stones. Riots erupted, and Salvationists came off badly in court as well as on the street. But persecution did bring one tremendous and unexpected benefit. Just outside Salisbury, in a cottage, lived a builder named Charles Fry. He had three grown sons: Fred, Ernest, and Bertram. Wait, 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 Bertram, Bertram, you got a pause there? Pause, yeah. yeah. You all got a pause. Same time, right? And we try that again from the top. This time, watch me on the pause, right? One, two, two, two. In the evening, when the work was done, they played music together. The Fries were staunch Methodists who heard that hooligans were roughing up local street meetings. What was needed was a bodyguard, and while they were there, they might as well bring along their instruments. And so the first Salvation Army band was born. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing? Tambourine sales skyrocketed. The Fries gave up their business to start the Army's musical department. The first year, there were 400 Salvation Army bands. But life in the Booth home had taken a grim turn. Catherine was terminally ill with cancer. I shall never forget in this world or the next that meeting. 
I'd been watching for the cab and had run to meet her and help her up the steps. She tried to smile through her tears, but drawing me into the room, she told me the verdict of the doctors. I sat down, speechless. She knelt beside me and said to me, Do you know what my first thought was? That I should not be there to nurse you. That's your last hour. She died at age 61, surrounded by her family. There was great sadness at her death. Catherine Booth was publicly acknowledged as one of the most remarkable women of the 19th century. Besieged by more homeless and hungry people than the army could cope with, to earn money, William had begun writing a book about the situation in what he called Darkest England. Shortly after Catherine's death, he finished his book in Darkest England and The Way Out, in which he poured out his feelings. He wrote passionately about the submerged tenth of the population, the poor, who had no rights. When in the streets of London a cab horse, weary or careless or stupid, trips and falls and lies stretched out in the midst of the traffic, there's no question of debating how he came to stumble before we try to get him on his feet again. Cab horse is a real illustration of poor, broken-down humanity. These are the two points in the cab horse's charter. When he's down, he's to be helped up. And while he lives, he has food, shelter, and work. He devised a social scheme which would offer food and shelter for the homeless and provide them with work and training for work. He wanted to see them become self-supporting and self-respecting. The book was a huge bestseller, and William Booth became the most talked-about man in Britain. People began to grasp what he was saying. In the play Major Barbara, George Bernard Shaw criticized the army for using tainted money to do its work. To this, Booth answered, We will wash it in the tears of the widows and orphans, and lay it on the altar of humanity. William never got over Catherine's death. But for the remaining 22 years of his life, he threw himself into his work. Always an innovator, he used the most modern technology available to him. To reach and gather these, I must make a big sound and paint with a big brush, big as the stars. Now, a year or so ago, I actually did an interview with one of the heads of the Salvation Army here in Coeur d'Alene, uh, northern Idaho area, and I was surprised to find out this guy is a general. Now, the Salvation Army is set up as an army, right? So they have the same designations. This guy's a general. Do you know how much money he makes a year? Between forty dollars and $50,000. That's what he makes a year. Now, if you look at the other charities out there, City of Hope, the head of that is $2.4 million. The American Cancer Society, $2 million a year. American Heart Association, $1.7 million. Shriners Hospital, $1.6 million. Now, these are your donations, okay? Your donations you give to these organizations. And this is what these people make. The NRA, Wayne LaPierre, $1.4 million. Uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, $1.3 million. Uh, National Jewish Health Foundation, $1.3 million. Wildlife Conservation Society, $1.3 million. St. Jude's Research Hospital, $1.2 million. And you see their, their commercials all the time on TV. National Urban League, $1.1 million. And it goes on and on and on and on. The head of Salvation Army, 
he doesn't make any more than the generals do. In fact, here's something. Here's something most people don't know. You ever hear the term "march for di- march of dimes"? Jerry Lewis used to fight, we used to promote that all the time. I remember that uh, in, in grade school we'd get a little card that we could slip dimes in, and at the when we filled it up, we can turn it in and uh, we'd get gold stars. And every store had a little a little uh, stand there that you could slip dimes in. So it was March of Dimes. Turns out a dime is all that gets used for help. 90 cents out of every dollar is going to uh, pay somebody's salary in March of Dimes. You know United Way? Well, my uh, aunt worked in that and she made... And now this is in probably about 1975. She was making $1.5 million a year. This is all a big scam. All of these charity donation places are, not all of them, there are wounded warrior projects out there. But, you know, every disaster, every single disaster in the United States, the very first people to show up is the Salvation Army. Every single one, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it, they show up first, not the Red Cross. About the year 2000, the wife of the founder of McDonald's, Joan Kroc, K-R-O-C, she donated the largest charity donation in the history of the world to the Salvation Army so that they could open up what's known as Kroc centers. These were big centers that were a combination of gymnasium, swimming pools, uh, conference center, a church. They're called croc centers, and there's about 22 or three of them right now throughout the United States. There happens to be one here in Coeur d'Alene. The donation she gave was $1.5 billion. And I have a little clip here to explain what the croc center is. This commercial strip along University Avenue was having some issues about the time. Uh, the businesses who had been on this property were all gone. It was sort of boarded up. It basically was sitting sort of as an eyesore. And I remember at actually one of the council meetings sort of raising my hand when they wanted a, an endorsement for their self-storage project. And I said, you know, I think we should wait and see what the other offers are. And I was uh, quickly pulled aside after that meeting by the council member who wanted to know, what do you know about this? And I said, well, I don't know anything. Why? And she said, there's something better coming. Back here at home, the woman known for her kindness throughout San Diego is living up to that well-deserved reputation. Heiress to the McDonald's fortune, Joan Kroc has made a huge donation to the Salvation Army, the largest single gift to the organization in its 118-year history. Well, imagine for a moment an Olympic-sized swimming pool and an ice skating rink right here full of hundreds of children their parents and grandparents. Well, that's what's in store at this vacant lot at the corner of University Avenue and Aragon Drive. Actually, this project took seed a few years ago when our former mayor, Maureen O'Connor, said, you know, I'd like to take you on a little tour of San Diego. I was troubled with what I observed, and it left a deep impression with me, one that would not go away. It also left me with a persistent desire to try to do something to make life a little happier for the families, particularly the children, as I realized that they desperately needed a safe gathering place, a place with facilities and trained professionals to nurture their social skills, arts appreciation, and athletic potential. She came from simple means, 
And she felt that if given the opportunity, people without means could achieve a great deal. It was certainly uh, expressing the Salvation Army mission in a new way that we've never done before. And so that was the challenge. My grandma was so excited at the groundbreaking of the center. And I remember her jumping in the bobcat, ready to break ground. Were you guys here when she did that? So hilarious. In her nicest St. John suit. It's a wonderful, wonderful day. And it's just great to be in the neighborhood, isn't it, Ken? I love it. two wishes and two hopes and one is that in the next hundred years that tens and tens of thousands of children will have had thousands of hours to enjoy this beautiful beautiful new facility and my other hope is that as you grow and develop and are nurtured that your hearts will never ever become hardened you're what the world is banking on it has been a beautiful, beautiful day, and I'm sure that this is something that Ray would have liked me to do. And I'm sure he's looking down. I hope he's looking down. But I know he'd be happy and proud of today. My grandma was so happy with how the center was built and how beautiful it was and so excited about all the children and the opportunities that they were going to have. But you know, every time you saw Mrs. Croc in this facility, I don't remember ever seen her when she wasn't smiling. I think the, from the very beginning, she wanted to do this a number of times. As a matter of fact, before she passed away, she talked about doing one in Chicago. She talked about doing one in Mississippi. And so I think it was always her dream uh, that these centers, uh, she referred to them as a, a beacon of light and hope in a community. And she wanted these centers to be all over the United States. My grandma said a lot about the Salvation Army. She trusted them wholeheartedly. You know, I think that 10 years, it's a great start because they're still being constructed. I think right now we're somewhere around um, 20 or so in the nation. There's still five or six on the drawing board. Uh, it's just, um, I think the future is going to be an exciting place. Now, for gym services at the Croc Center, they, they charge. And they charge other things. Different things can happen there, and, and they can charge for it. But that their money goes to support the poor, goes to actually perform. And I think how it works is 96 cents out of every dollar given to the Salvation Army goes towards the poor and to, and to uh, help people in, in, in case of emergencies. And real simple. If you're going to donate money, give it to the Salvation Army. They actually use it. Now, I was in a forest fire one time. I remember this. They stopped us, and we were outside of Eureka, California, and they stopped the family. They were stopping people on the highway saying, we need your help. we got to fight this fire, forcing you to volunteer to fight the fire. And they had shovels and everything else. And on the highway, I think this was Highway 101, were Salvation Army trucks set up with coffee and sandwiches for everybody. And they also had uh, first aid equipment there and all of that stuff. I remember that. So if you're going to donate to anyone, donate to the Salvation Army. In this time of confusion and hate and intolerance and lies and false narratives, one of the things that tends to disappear from everybody's view is something called compassion. Most people don't know what it means. 
I got this little dictionary here. It weighs about 15 pounds. It's Webster's Encyclopedic Unabridged Dictionary of the English Language. I don't like using abridged dictionaries. Let's look up the word compassion. A feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. That's what compassion is. Compassion is a concept that is foreign in many, many households. We we were very poor. And this is when I learned compassion. Because we were so poor, we we literally couldn't rub two nickels together. Yet we still went out of our way to somehow show compassion and be compassionate to, to people who had less than us. We would always have a Christmas tree. Grandpa would go up in the woods and cut it. But there were so many people I knew that had could not afford Christmas trees. Now, this was a few years later in high school. We, we were in Sacramento at that time, and there, it was very, very bad times. People were very poor. But I knew that the Christmas tree lots at 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve, they would close. And they would either sell what trees they had left for a dollar, or they'd give them away. So my mother and my sister and I would go to the Christmas tree lot and have them fill up the bed of the truck. We borrowed my grandpa's pickup truck. And then what we would do, we'd already scoped this out. We had the addresses already written down. And we would go to these houses where people couldn't afford a Christmas tree. And we'd put one on their porch, ring the bell, (laughs) and run like hell. That took nothing from us but gave us much, much relief that we could actually, as poor as we were, we could actually help people. And we've done that for years. And all of our friends used to do that kind of thing too. But it doesn't seem to be happening as much now. Now people go, you know something, I'll, I'll just give 20 bucks to the Salvation Army or or I'll, I'll, give, I'll give a couple bucks to uh, Goodwill or, or I'll do this. You know, you, you, little things. Keeps your hands from getting dirty. You need to put your hands on. You need to find someone who's hungry. You need to find somebody who needs something. There was a story the other day, and I'm I know it's I'm not going to get it get it right. It wasn't it was I don't think it was Baskin Robbins. It might have been Burger King or something like that. Nine hundred people paid for the person behind them. Nine hundred people in a row. I remember in San Francisco years ago. I'm walking along downtown area, and uh, I come out of a, a a restaurant and sitting on the on the concrete. Next, with his back leaning up against the restaurant, was this guy my age. And I said, uh, what are you doing there? And he goes, uh, you got you got any change for a veteran? I said, you're a veteran? Yes, sir, I am. I said, then get off your ass now. And he jumped. And he got up and I said, how dare you deface yourself? How dare you in- insult and degrade yourself by sitting on the f- ground outside? So I talked to him for about a half an hour. I won't go into the whole thing. But when he got done, I gave him a $10 bill. And I said, now I want you to go in there and get something to eat and I want you to buy some food for somebody else because he knew he he had told me that he had knew other people out on the street that were like him veterans with no jobs and I said you must always help the others you must always do that to this day I still preach the same thing and it, it sounds almost socialistic but it's not my belief is those that can must and people say those that can what and I said exactly those that can must now, this might make me sound like some kind of a nutso, but I go into a, an office, like I go into a dentist's office, and one of the cabinet doors is hanging off. It's not closing right. Well, I've got a little pocket knife that has a screwdriver on it. I fix it. I go visit somebody, 
at their house. I use the bathroom. The handle on a faucet's loose. I'll fix it for them. What does it take? Nothing. But you know what? All of a sudden, they realize something changed. Literally, I've had people say that. You know, they, A week after I left this woman's house, she, she called me up and she goes, I don't know what, what it is, but after you've left, I realize something has changed in the house. I don't know what it is. The cabinet below your bathroom sink, the door never closed. Does it close now? She goes in the bathroom and she goes, oh my God, it does. I, t- I didn't even think of that. She said, I've never used it and now I'm using it every day. That's a little bit of compassion, but it doesn't take much for you to help others. You can do it with a good word. You can do it by smiling at somebody who has never had somebody smile at him. I took a dog one time. Everybody hated it because it was big and threatening. And I went up to its yard and I sat down in the grass about 10 feet from it. And it was barking and barking and barking and barking. And it got closer and it got closer and it got closer. And finally, it stopped barking and started to smell me. I have no idea what I smelled like at that time. But within 15 minutes, we were friends. I've gone to places that the people tell me, don't touch that dog, it'll rip your hand off. And the next thing you know, a slobber-covered tennis ball is being shoved into my hand. To play with the dog, you can all be the best thing that you want to be, if even for a few minutes. So much for that. I got to get going. You all keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground. Go to survivalenterprises.com, se1.us. 800-753-1981. That's 800-753-1981. Give us a call. Buy something. That way we can still be in business next year. This is the Armchair Survivalist signing off.